Well, one of the things that I really learned, and or I already knew it, and I think we all know it, but it really is true, is that you really have to think about your body. We all want to operate at peak performance and push past our barriers, find new boundaries, be the best that we can possibly be. Now, I've long been an advocate of natural training, believing strongly that Mother Nature has provided all the tools that we need. But recently, a few new innovations have evolved my mindset in this area. One of these is the new NeuroStim device for physical performance enhancement called Halo. Now, Halo stimulates that area of your brain responsible for movement. And the company has demonstrated a positive neuroplastic effect leading to performance gains in both individuals and teams. It's very simple to use and comfortable. I'm using it now to enhance my physical training as well as my somatic movement skills. Think Tai Chi. So I'm excited to now introduce this to the Unbeatable Mind tribe. And the team at Halo is offering $125 off the sport model. So check out their website at haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND125 at checkout. Trust me on this one. There are a few folks who already have the jump on you. So go to haloneuro.com today and use the promo code UNBEATABLEMIND125. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine here with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy and there's a lot of other things vying for your attention. So I take it very seriously and I won't waste your time. I've got a super cool guest today, Gretchen Rubin. Uh, before I introduce her formally, let me remind you that it really helps if you go rate the podcast and iTunes. Also, we're available now in Google Play and Stitcher, SoundCloud, etc., etc., really does help to review it. And if you're not on our email list, go to unbeatablemind.com slash podcast, drop your name on the email list. And also a quick plug for our last academy, SealFit Academy of the Year is coming up in October. It'll be your last chance to do the full spectrum integrated immersive training experience that we run that has uh, really impacted so many people. So check out that at sealfit.com slash training or slash academy. I can't remember which one it is. At any rate, it doesn't matter. You'll find it. So Gretchen, I've just met Gretchen and I've got her book. I'm super excited to talk to her and to have her introduce um, you know, her you know, views and, and uh, thoughts on development to you. Gretchen is a New York Times bestseller. She sold over 3 million copies of her books, Better Than Before and The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. And uh, she runs a super popular podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. She's been listed as a top 50 leadership and management experts by Inc. Magazine, named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. She is definitely a mover and shaker and doing some really good work. And the interesting thing about Gretchen is she started her career as an attorney. So I'm kind of have a kinship because I started my career as a CPA and then I became a Navy SEAL. So she was an attorney and then she became a happiness expert and trainer. So that's an interesting and unlikely combination there. So Gretchen, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, super appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be talking to you. 
Yeah, likewise, likewise. So uh, I gave you a little background on our Unbeable Mind folks, and we always like to kind of start and get to know, you know, the, the person behind all the hype, right? And so give us a sense of your, your origin, your origin story, who you are, where you're from, you know, how did you get into law and what was that like? And, you know, just kind of like bring us up to date, so to speak. Okay. Um, well, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, so I spent my whole childhood there um, in a kind of very happy childhood. I have a younger sister who's five years younger, who's my co-host on the Happier podcast that you mentioned, um, oh, cool. whom I'm very close to. And after that, I went to college. And then, as you said, I went to law school. And I had a great time in law. I was uh, editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Review, which is called the Yale Law Journal. And I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I realized, you know what? I really want to be a writer. Um, I had I had gone as far as I wanted to go in law. And then I had an idea for a book that I wanted to write. And so I decided, you know, well, maybe I will try to switch to writing. Hmm. So that's when I switched to writing. And then you know, as as technology has progressed, tools like blogging and podcasting have really come into the reach of people who are like not really very tech savvy, like me, but who just want to engage with readers and listeners on issues of, of interest. So I've gotten, I've grown from writing into, you know, podcasting and doing, you know, Facebook live videos and all this stuff. I would never have thought I would be doing. Um, but now there's so many ways to engage with audiences now. And um, I get, I have, a, I really enjoy doing all of that. No doubt. I can commiserate with you. There's, they seem like they, they add something new every week that we have to do right? <laughs> <laughs> to engage. But it's, so uh, two things kind of come up for me there. One is it seems a little unusual to me to, you know, just, you know, to be lawyer and be having fun as a lawyer and clerking for someone as esteemed as Justice Day O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor. And then just to say, well, I just want to write. What, what were the, you know, was there a creative streak in you that ran through your childhood? And was there some unexpressed, you know, author in you early in your life? Or was this truly kind of a transformation that just that, that kind of came upon you? Well, you know, if I look back on my life, I certainly did everything a person would do to prepare herself to be a writer. Uh, first of all, I read all the time growing up, and I still read all the time. I take a lot of notes on what I read, tremendous amount of notes, which is uh, a very good exercise for someone writing. I majored in English. You know, law school is certainly a training in a certain kind of writing. And I always wrote papers instead of taking exams. I've written three really horrible, bad novels that are safely locked away in a desk drawer. So I've always done things that would show this kind of writerly uh, inclination, but I really didn't see a pl I didn't understand what kind of writer I wanted to be because I knew I didn't want to be like a novelist or a playwright or a poet. And I knew mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a journalist. And I knew that I didn't want to be an academic writer. You know, I didn't want to write, mm -hmm. write a PhD thesis. So I didn't really understand what kind of writer I wanted to be. And, and nowadays, something like creative nonfiction is really uh, understood as a category. But at this time, it wasn't really something that people talked about that much. So it took me a while to see how what the kind of writing that I would want to do was the kind of writing that I could do for a living. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, if I'm not if I'm not a novelist and I'm not a journalist, what am I? I'm like, well, there's a place for the kind of writing that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, that's, so that leads me to the kind of the second question is, how did you decide to write about happiness? I mean, were you were you talking about happiness all the time? Was it something that was mm -hmm. always on your mind? I mean, where did that come from? That's really interesting. 
Well, you know, The Happiness Project was the fourth book I wrote, and all the books I ri- I've written, though they might look very different from the outside, are all about human nature. That's my subject. That's what I'm interested okay. in, and, and so I'm always looking at it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I was just finishing up a biography of John F. Kennedy when I was sitting in a crowded city bus and looking out in the pouring rain, and I thought, well, what do I want from life anyway? I want to be mm-hmm. happy. And I realized at that moment, I never thought about whether I was happy um, and if I could be happier. And I thought, I should have a happiness project. And so really, that was I was just going to do it for myself. That was how it occurred to me. So I went, went to the library, got this giant stack of books the next day and started researching it. And it was just going to be for me. And I often get very obsessed with, with sort of subjects. That happens to me all the time. It has all my whole life. But this was something that was so rich and so vast that pretty soon I thought, well, gosh, maybe I should write a book about it. And, you know, ever since I've basically been writing in that vein, it's such a vast subject. So it wasn't really that I thought about happiness all the time. If anything, I didn't think about it nearly enough. And that mm-hmm. that was my realization is that I really did need to think about it. Right. And so what did you learn? How did you distill that into kind of the, the aha moments for you? And what were the kind of the major lessons that you presented in that project or that you uncovered in that project? Well, in the Happiness Project, what I did is I decided to take a year because a year felt like enough time, enough time that real change could occur, but not so much time that, you know, I couldn't see past the horizon. Mm -hmm. And I decided for myself, and it would be different for everyone, what were the 12 areas that I wanted to work on, given my research that I thought would give me the best boost in happiness. Mm -hmm. And so I gave each for each month had a separate theme. And each month had two to five concrete manageable resolutions for things that I was going to do um, as part of my ordinary day, not as part of a you know trip across the world or a 10-day silent meditation retreat, but just part of my ordinary routine. What were the things that I could do that I thought would make me happier? And, um, and so that was how I approached the Happiness Project, was really like trying to be very concrete you know, and very much within what you can do without spending a lot of extra time, energy, or money, just to try to find the low-hanging fruit. Right, yeah. You know, the little things you can do um, that can really boost your, your, make you happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And so that's that's what I did in the Happiness Project. And did you find that just, you know, choosing this, what you call low-hanging fruit, or, you know, changing some of the small things in life had a big impact for you? Yes, it's surprising how often very, very small changes can really have what would seem to be very disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that we did, one of the few resolutions that we made as a family, everything I did, I did myself. I didn't involve other people because mm-hmm. you can't make other people do anything or change, mm-hmm. which is one sure. of the sad truths of happiness. But the one thing we sort of decided as a family we were going to do is we were going to give warm hellos and farewells. Whenever somebody came into the apartment or left, we would really greet them, mm. really like put down the book or the device or look up from homework or whatever and really say hello and really say goodbye with like a kiss and And this was very simple, and yet it dramatically changed the atmosphere of my house because you really feel so much more, you feel that attentiveness and that tenderness that we all want from our home. Mm -hmm. Um, And it didn't take, it wasn't hard to do, and and it made a big difference. So there's a lot of things like that, I think, for most people. That is pretty cool. I love that. I love that, you know, because you're just dropping into your heart just for a moment, but then you're training that as a... yeah. As a habit, what were some of, you know, without going through, you know, all 12, but what were some of the major insights? Like I said, uh, that was a good one that you just shared, but what were some of the other ones that had a real big impact on you? And you could say when looking back, you know, those, those two or three were really powerful. 
Well, one of the things that I really learned, and or I already knew it, and I think we all know it, but it really is true, is that you really have to think about your body. And when I started the project, I started with energy, because I figured, well, if I had more energy, everything would be more easier. And that is very true. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, there's things that you know perfectly well would make you happier, but you're just too exhausted or overwhelmed to deal with it. You know, you're like, right. yes, it'd be great to have a Super Bowl party, but who can be bothered to organize it? It just seems like too much work. But if you have more mm-hmm. energy than things like that, that will have a happiness payoff become easier. Mm-hmm. So things like making sure that I got enough sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm a sleep zealot, but I was sort of kidding myself about how much sleep I actually got. So now I'm mm-hmm. much more careful to make sure I get to sleep on time. A major habit that I changed that I talk about in Better Than Before, which is my book about specifically about habit change, which is that I gave up uh, basically carbs. And so I don't eat sugar or flour or rice or pasta or starchy vegetables no. or really even fruit. And I mm-hmm. love that. I love, um, you know, because I have a real sweet tooth. And so being free from sugar has been great. So that was one thing that I did that was terrific. I mean, there's so many things. And and it's important to note, like, these are the things, I talked about the things that work for me. Mm-hmm. And part of the fun of doing your own happiness project is you have to think about, well, what would be true for you? Because everyone is different. So for me, music isn't that important. I'm just not a very music-centric person. But somebody, they might have a whole month that's about music. And like, I want to get back into the practice of regular practice. I want to go to live concerts. I want to l- listen to new music. I want to get together with people once every two weeks and play music together. It could be a whole thing that might dramatically improve their happiness. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like, meh, I don't really care that much about music, you know? <laughs> Right. So was your process to choose one thing a month and that's why you have 12 of them and then just focus on that one thing? One theme, one theme, one a, theme month. a month. One theme, got it. And when you, ch- let's say you're in month four, are you just focusing on that one theme or are you focusing on that theme plus the theme from month one, two, and three? No, it's rolling forward. It's yes, rolling. everything. Okay, it's so cumulative. It's, <laughs> it's a cumulative project. Well, yeah, and I'm, it's funny because my ever, Navy SEAL mind ever is trying since, to break this down, you know, like into his parts. Well, ever ever since the Happiness Project came out, and then I did Happier at Home, which was like a, a kind of a, a specialized happiness project. For people would say to me, "But how did you get your how did you get yourself to do these things?" And I would say, "Well, I just I knew they would make me happier, so I did them." And then people would be like, "But how did you get yourself to do them?" And this was a big mystery to me. I was like, "I don't know what's so hard about that." That's why I wrote The Four Tendencies, because now I understand why. As my learning about human nature progressed, I understood why it was so easy for me to do these things that made me happier. It wasn't really that hard to follow through. For most people, that would be a bigger challenge. And so that's what led me to, that was a bit one of the big patterns that I noticed that led me to my book, The Four Tendencies, which is about mm-hmm. the personality framework that I created. Right. Yeah, I want to get into that in a little bit. But before, let's talk about the difference between, you know, overcoming a bad habit and creating a new habit. What, you know, what was your Mm. experience around that? Right. Well, and better than before, I talk about the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break a habit. And the thing about a habit is, it's like, it's really not that important about whether it's making a habit or breaking a habit, because really almost every habit can be conceived of in the flip side. So mm-hmm. are you, you know, eating more healthfully or are you giving up junk food? You know, mm-hmm. and, and there's research suggesting that some people do better when they think of it as the positive and some people do better when they think of it as like offsetting a negative. So it's whatever works for you. It's whatever appeals to you. 
So there are 21 strategies that people use, whether they're making or breaking their habits. As I said, it doesn't really matter how you mm-hmm. how do you characterize it, except that you should pick the way that uh, appeals to you. But the thing is, is you know, people say, oh, 21, it's so many. It's too many. I can't deal with it. But some of these strategies work very well for some people and don't work at all for other people. Some are available to us at some times of our lives, but not at other times of our lives. So really the key thing is, well, what kind of person are you? Mm-hmm. What helps you to succeed? There is no one right way. There is no one best way to succeed. It's only what works for you because, you know, it's like get up early and exercise. Well, that's a good idea if you're a morning person, but night people, and this is actually a thing, like it's largely genetically determined and also a function of age. Night people are at their most productive and creative and energetic later in the day. The idea that you're going to get up at 6 a.m. and go for a run is just not realistic. They're not going to stick to it, but they could go for a run at four, which I could not do as a hardcore morning person, but there's no right way or wrong way. It's just whatever works for you. If you do better running at four, then figure out a way to make that part of your day. Don't tell yourself that you should run at 6 a.m. or that's the best way to, yeah. to, to exercise. It doesn't, it's just whatever works for you. That was really what I learned about habits. This podcast episode is brought to you by Organifi. Now we all know that green juice is good for us, but juicing is a pain. It costs a fortune and it's super time consuming. At least that's my story. Uh, I don't juice. So that's why I opt for Organifi green juice as an alternative because it's super easy, super tasty. It's an organic superfood green juice powder. Just add it to your water and stir it up. It dissolves almost immediately. Drink it and it will help sustain your energy throughout the day. It'll reduce stress over time. And best part is it really tastes good. So check it out. To get your micronutrients from a superfood green juice, use Organifi. I think stuff is great. Go to Organifi.com, and these guys are super generous. I know the founder, and they have offered a 20% discount to you on your order. So go to Organifi.com, use the code UNBEATABLE at checkout, and get 20% off your order. And uh, that link is also listed below in the show notes of this episode. Organifi.com. Hoo-yah. One of the most common reasons people fail at implementing a new habit or a new strategy. Because they don't set it up in the right way for them. They think, well, this is the right way to do it, or this is how Steve Jobs did it. Um, Or, you know, I read like the seven habits of highly successful people. And so I'm going to do it that way. And they don't take into account what works for them. Because um, Mm -hmm. like one difference that you see is simplicity lovers and abundance lovers. So simplicity Mm -hmm. lovers are people like me. We like bare surfaces clean shelves, you know, walls without much on them, not much noise, not much going on. And we feel like that's what stimulates our creativity and productivity. Mm -hmm. Abundance lovers like buzz and profusion, a lot of stuff on the walls, a lot of things happening, collections, abundance. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is when somebody says, well, my way is the right way. You know, Mm -hmm. a cluttered desk means a cluttered mind. Well, maybe that's true for you. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way for somebody else to succeed. And so I think when people are frustrated, it's often because they're telling themselves they should be able to do it some way, or someone else is telling them that they should be able to do it some way. And it's not the right way for them. So a lot of times I'm saying it's not that you lack willpower, that you don't have any self-control. It's just that you haven't set the situation up for you to succeed. And if you change the way things are set up, you probably have a much better chance for success. Yeah. I imagine that setup also has to do with how you define success and whether that's an intrinsic, you know, kind of motivation or some sort of external 
thing. You know what I mean? Like uh, you can mm. set up weight loss as, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna work on my fueling or my dieting uh, or how I eat so that I feel and, and, uh, and look better and show up with more energy. And they have some way of measuring that. Or, you know, you can actually say, well, I want to lose 40 pounds, which is more of an external motivator. And some people are motivated by one or the other, I imagine. But what did you find in that? Were you, were you mostly intrinsically motivated with the, um, with the habits mm, or did you have well, ex- external? Well, that sort of gets into the four tendencies. Um, okay. well, but I don't really talk about it as motivation, but more expectation. So that mm-hmm. kind of that gets into sort of an area where I have sort of a slightly different way of looking at it. Um, okay. the, the thing about losing 40 pounds, one side note I would make about like the idea of I'm going to lose 40 pounds is that in you, in the area of habit formation, a very dangerous thing to do is to set up a goal because setting mm-hmm. up a goal is a great way to hit a goal. It's not a great way to build a habit because mm-hmm. if you say I'm going to have a, you know, a 30 day yoga challenge or I'm going to give up sugar for Lent or I'm going to train for the marathon. What happens is you do a great job like running towards that finish line. But what happens at a finish line? You're there finished. You And then people feel like, oh, well, now I'm going to go back to normal. I've lost my 40 pounds. I reached my goal weight. Now I can go back to eating normally. So what happens when you eat normally? You go right back. You gain all the weight back, right? Because that's how you were eating before. So really with habits, you have to think not about hitting a goal, but about passing a milestone. Because running the marathon or losing 40 pounds, those are thrilling milestones. But they they are only a few of many milestones that you will pass in a lifetime of exercise or a lifetime of healthy eating. And mm-hmm. so these goals can actually get in people's way. Right. People think that they're helpful, but they're actually kind of a, a hurdle. Yeah, I guess, you know, the way I would look at that is if you're focused on the destination or the journey. And, you know, you can develop a habit and have certain goals. But I like the term milestone, but you have certain goals or milestones that are going to mark your progress and to be achievement oriented. Mm-hmm. But they're complementary to the development of the habit or they're ways to demonstrate and to... Um, Lock in, I should say, some gains mm-hmm. from the hat, you know, what, yep. you're, what you're developing with that Exactly. And that's exactly. really cool. Exactly. Before we turn our attention to, you know, the four tendencies, which I think are fascinating, let's talk about money and time. Because those, you know, I think money and time in our, at least our Western society, are are real impediments in certain ways to, um, or at least concepts of money and, and concepts of how time is meant to be used are um, impediments to happiness. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think there, there, are some, there, are, there are elements of life to be very carefully considered because you're right, they can get in your way. I mean, the thing about money, money's kind of like health in that we're much more aware of its, its drag on our happiness than we are of its lift in our happiness. So if you mm-hmm. don't have your health or if you don't have enough money to, for, to meet your needs, you're very aware of it and it's, it's mm-hmm. a drag on your happiness. If you have enough, if you have your health, if you ha- it's, it's hard to maintain a sense of gratitude for it, which is, I think, mm-hmm. why you know, there are a lot of like, people trying to remind themselves to be grateful for the things that they have because it's easy to like, take that for granted and not realize like, how full of you know, thankfulness you should be for the fact you don't have to worry about these things. Right. Time is interesting because time, you know, everybody has, you know, time, you can't waste it. You can't, spe- you can't spend it. You can't accelerate through it. It's just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in talking to people about happiness, it's certainly something that comes up over and over again is people wanting to deepen their sense of time, make their time, their sense of time more rich and more valuable and to use their time wisely, you know, which is things like I want to get off Facebook so that I have more time to read novels. And so mm-hmm. they want to build habits that are going to help them do that because they recognize that certain kinds of time are more valuable than other kinds of time. So 
why don't you spend your time in the most valuable way? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. And once you identify them, then you can start figuring out ways to solve for that. It's a Mm -hmm. big, big theme and better than before. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. And I was thinking as, or, you know, as you were saying that, that the simple practice, like you described of just greeting someone with total presence can kind of uh, shift time and shift your perspective on it and create a moment that is, you know, feels like a lifetime, you know what I mean? And then Mm -hmm. you have that forever as opposed to being, you know, continuing to be distracted. And when you're distracted and you're constantly distracted, time seems to just zip on by. But by creating yes. those moments of connection, all of a sudden, time will seem to stop. And, you know, you can have a, a joyous moment that can feel like forever. And that happiness kind of like pops his head up in those moments, doesn't it, when we're present? That's interesting. So mm-hmm. let's, let's shift focus a little bit to The Four Tendencies. Now, this is a book that you've just recently finished. It's not on the market yet, am I right? When's it due out? September 12th. September 12th, right around the corner. Okay, good luck with it. We'll help uh, help you get a bump here by talking about it and promoting it. Thank you. This, yeah, so this is about, when I first read this, it's like, oh, yeah, personality profiles, blah, 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 Myers-Briggs. But then I lo- opened it, and I'm like, I don't recognize any of these. Um, did you kind of create this this model of the upholder, the question of the rebel, and the obliger? Or is this, are you drawing on yes. some research? Okay. So, no, I create. I don't know. I don't know whether to say that I created it or I discovered it because it does seem mm-hmm. like laws of nature. So I almost feel. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm more like a scientist with a microscope than I am like than somebody who made it up. But essentially, I made it up. Yeah, I I was the one who first identified this this okay. pattern, this large pattern within human nature. Got it. Okay, so let's. Can you walk us through it in a keep it yeah. simple fashion? All right. Go for yes. it. Yes. So the four tendencies, as you said, it's upholder, questioner, obliger, or rebel. And this has to do with how you respond to expectations. And so all of us face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations, like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then inner expectations, which is like your own desire to meet a New Year's resolution, your own desire to get back into running. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They, they meet the work deadline. They meet the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if it meets their standard. They turn everything into an inner expectation. If they think Mm -hmm. it's justified, they will meet that expectation. If they feel like it's arbitrary or inefficient or irrational, they will resist it. Interesting. Then yeah. obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into this tendency when a friend said to me, I know I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And mm-hmm. now I know she's an obliger. When she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. When she was just trying to go running on her own, it was a struggle. Then mm-hmm. finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Mm-hmm. And so most people can tell what they are and the people around them are just from this brief description. But there is a quiz online at happiercast.com slash quiz. And like 800,000 mm-hmm. people or something have taken this quiz. So you can take the quiz if you like to have an answer spit out at you. But like I say, a lot of people can just tell what they are from the description. Because these are pretty blatant. They're, you know, they're pretty obvious for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
And which one are you again? You're the upholder or? I'm an upholder. And what's interesting about the tendencies is they're not equally distributed. So mm-hmm. the biggest tendency for both men and women, the biggest tendency is obliger, that they are the rock of the world. They're, you know, they're the ones that that's a big tent. You either are an obliger, you have many obligers in your life. The next mm-hmm. questioners, questioners also very large tendency. Um, the smallest tendency is rebel. It's a conspicuous tendency, but it's small. My tendency, the upholder tendency, only slightly bigger. Those are the two kind of extreme personality types. They're small. Most mm-hmm. people are questioners or obligers. Now, I'm an upholder. What are you? Do you know what you are? Well, I, I think I'm an upholder as well. I don't resist outer expectations, um, although I might, you know, I might challenge them at times. But I'm, you know, especially with my upbringing, I was always quick to meet the expectations of my parents and society. And, you know, and I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years, so I had to meet expectations. But I wonder if you're an obl- I think I wonder if you're an obliger. The mission of your of your podcast made me think that maybe you're an obliger. How do you feel about inner expectations, things that nobody else cares about? Because you're right, upholders and obligers both readily meet outer expectations, and so in that mm-hmm. way, obligers and upholders are alike. The question is, well, what what about that inner expectation that nobody cares about? Nobody, maybe people are even well, kind of inconvenienced. Yeah, yeah. Well, help me understand what it, what it would be like to resist an inner expectation while meeting an outer expectation. Like, um, it's easy for me to meet a deadline at work, but it's hard for me to work on a novel on my, um, in my free time. Or yeah, it's easy for me to go to the gym when I'm working with a trainer or I'm taking a class or I'm meeting a friend or I'm going to do a 5k to raise money for charity. But when I'm just supposed to go on my own, it's a struggle Mm. or, you know, for me to get motivated to do something, I have to think about how it's going to help other people or why other people care or going to be affected or even notice, um, that when I'm just trying to do something for myself, it's, it maybe doesn't get done. That is, this is really awesome. So I would say that I have aspects of both. There's a shadow aspect of me that is very codependent from my upbringing, and that plants me firmly in the obliger category. But as I've grown and, and evolved and kind of overcome some of those, you know, some of those mental patterns or emotional patterns, I've become much more of an upholder. So I'm kind of in that space mm. where they overlap. And that's a good, that's probably well, it's, a good it's question. Interesting. Do, do, do it's interesting. As, do we have aspects of all these in us or can we? Or well, you can't be, people can kind of tip one way or the other. You can, because each of the tendencies has something in common with two other tendencies. So as an obliger, yeah, obligers and upholders have something in common and that they both readily meet outer expectations. But obligers also share something with rebels and they both resist inner expectations. And I have to say, just listening to your description of your podcast, I thought that sounds like an obliger perspective on the world. Just the way that you framed it to me, I was like, that sounds like the way an obliger would think about it. Um, and that, you know, that's the largest tendency. Um, and so obviously that's going to resonate with a lot of people because that's the one that most people feel like, but it, absolutely some obligers tip to upholder and some upholders tip to obliger. And so there are these, this, this sort of, these people do kind of take from the other, they will take kind of a flavor of the other. So like I'm an upholder who tips to questioner, but some upholders tip to obliger. So mm-hmm. it just kind of flavors the way that it comes out. Right. And these, these four tendencies aren't good nor bad. They just are. They're, they're personality types or profiles, like a Myers-Briggs. Oh, 100%. E, 100%. Each tendency has great strengths and great weaknesses. Um, each includes people who are hugely successful and also big losers. So, you know, <laughs> when you look at who's – people will sometimes say, well, who's the happiest? Who's the most successful? Who's the healthiest? Who's the most productive? Mm-hmm. And it really isn't a particular tendency – 
it's that within a tendency, a person has figured out how to harness the strengths of that tendency and how to offset the limitations or weaknesses of the tendency. So about yourself, you said like over time, it sounds like you think like with time and experience and wisdom, I've learned how to get the best out of myself and how to set, you know, how to get myself to meet my own aims for myself. Well, that's partly, but whatever your tendency is, it's like seeing like, well, what doesn't work for me? How can I set things up so that I am going to be able to meet my own aims for myself? It doesn't have to do with your tendency. It's about working with your tendency, understanding Mm -hmm. yourself so you can figure that out better. Yeah. So what you're saying is uh, if I'm an obliger, I'm, I'm stuck as an obliger. (laughs) <laughs> it's not that you're stuck as an obliger, but I just I do think it's an inborn part of your personality. I don't I don't think it's it's you're not one at twenty and one at forty. You're not one at work and one at home. I don't think. In my experience, these are pretty hardwired aspects of personality, and that people do have a core tendency that is like not and and like it's your instinctual reaction to an expectation. So like I'm an upholder. So if I'm asked to do something, my instinct is to be like. I'm going to do that if I can. Mm-hmm. Like husband is a questioner. And so his instinct is to say, why should I? Now I've learned mm-hmm. a lot from my husband. And a lot of times my, even though my instinct is to meet an expectation, I'll be like, wait a minute, let me take a pause and think, why, do, why should I do that? I've learned from him to imitate him. I still have that instinct, but I've learned to insert that pause and to take that moment to decide, is this a good use of my time and my energy? Or, or, or do mm-hmm. I need to think about this a little bit longer? But it, I still have that snap Yes, I can do this. Yes, I will mm-hmm. meet that expectation. That's interesting. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now, and it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R, Dot com and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. So how do we use these? Like, I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting and I'm thinking, oh, wow, I can learn a lot. But what's the practical application for us? Well, part of it is that when we don't, when you understand the tendencies, you can understand how to manage yourself better. And you can also manage 
your relationships with other people better and help them to achieve their aims better too. Because I think it's natural for all of us to just assume, well, people see the world the way I do. You don't even consciously think that you're seeing the world in a particular way. You just think you're seeing the world. And when you understand how people could have different reactions, you have greater insight into their, to the way that they behave. So take questioners, for example. Questioners can sometimes drain and overwhelm others with their constant questioning. And they can sometimes be perceived as being undermining or not team players or disrespectful, say like a questioner child who's asking a lot of questions of a teacher and people are like, take that amiss. The questioner doesn't mean to be insubordinate or disrespectful. They just really want to have robust explanations if they're going to meet an uh, an expectation. And so when you understand that about a questioner, you can be like, well, they kind of drive me with their questions, crazy with their questions, but it's a questioner. And so I understand where this is coming from. I don't have to take this personally. We can just figure out how to get this person the information they need. That's fine. Similarly, mm-hmm. like with obligers, um, the key thing, and maybe this is maybe the most important thing in the whole book, is if an obliger is having trouble meeting an inner expectation, which by definition they are, because that is the definition of an obliger, the mm-hmm. solution, the answer is so simple, and that is to give yourself outer accountability for whatever that inner expectation is. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise more, exercise with a friend or work with a trainer or sign up for a class where you're going to get paid. If you want to ha- have a side hustle, you know, create a customer or a client or a student, for some, even if they're not paying you, but somebody who's expecting you to deliver for them. And that accountability is going to allow you to follow through for yourself. I see. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. So set up the structure that, that it's fear that, you know, is going to hold you accountable or that you're going to go out and meet someone else's expectation because you don't want to let them down or let yourself down. Well, and because a lot of times when I think when people don't understand the tendencies, they can kind of misdiagnose what the problem is. So for, to talk about obligers, obligers will often say like, well, well, I, I, I never take time for myself or I can't put myself first or I always, I always go, I, I would never say no to a client or a customer or a patient, or I have low self-esteem, or I'm a people pleaser. Like they have a lot of things that they, a lot of ways that they dress it up or, you know, the way they characterize it. And I'm like, you don't have to, don't get into any of that. It's only about accountability. And once you see that all you need to do is plug in the outer accountability, then all that other stuff will just go away. Um, but it's important to understand this because, see, sometimes obligers fall into the the mistaken belief that, well, I always am meeting the needs of others and other people's priorities, but I never have time for myself. Therefore, if I quit my demanding job, then I will have time for myself. Or if I retire early, I hear this a lot of times from people who retire. If I retire early, then I will have time to meet my inner expectations because I won't have those outer expectations. That doesn't happen. The mere disappearance of outer expectations does not allow an obliger to meet inner expectations unless outer accountability is put into place. That's just the way it is. I mean, I just that's, that is just the way that it works. This is easy to fix once you realize what the solution is. The solution is not to quit your job. The solution is to create outer accountability for whatever it is that you want to get done. That's what's going to work. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so what you're saying to me is a, an obliger, if, if obliger wanted to develop a new habit, then just some intrinsic motivation around that habit is probably not going to work if it's if you know if it's something that she's or he is going to resist. So they're going to need you know a friend or someone to hold them accountable. Yes, they need some form of accountability. Now, some obligers can do kind of fancy things. Not all obligers, but some can like be accountable to their future self. 
This works mm-hmm. for surprisingly high number of obligers. Now Gretchen doesn't want to exercise, but future Gretchen is going to be really disappointed and full of regret if now Gretchen doesn't exercise. So I need to do it for for future Gretchen. That doesn't work for all obligers, but there are they they you know sometimes you can do things like that. And obligers come up with the most resourceful and imaginative, hilarious systems of accountability. Really, it's just that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of the book was was just cataloging what they did, but you're exactly right. Thinking about your inner motivation does not work for uh, it works great for rebels and it can really work well for questioners and upholders too. It doesn't work very successfully for for obligers. So how is the rebel motivated? If they resist outer expectation and they resist inner expectation, how, how do you motivate them or how do they motivate themselves? That is a very, that's a, that's a very interesting question because rebels are kind of different from the other three. I would say they're the most distinct mm-hmm. and they have to be, and you really need to know if you are in a rebel or you're dealing with a rebel because you really want to have that in mind in the way that you deal with them. So there's two things to think about when you're like, if you're trying to help a rebel change or you're a rebel who's trying to work on yourself. Rebels always want to act from freedom and choice. They want to express their their identity and what they do. So you can always appeal to someone's idea of their identity. You want to do this because you want to be, this is the kind of parent you want to be. Yeah, it drives you crazy to have to show up for carpool every day at the same time, but you're going to do this because you're a responsible, considerate parent who's going to be there for your child. That's who you want to be. So you can do it because that's who you want to be. So an appeal to identity. Oh, you know, you're a young, vigorous person. Of course, you're going to go out for a run and you're going to push yourself because you're that kind of person. Like your whole life, you've been so outdoorsy and you've been so vigorous. Like you're not some couch potato who can't run five miles at a time. No, this is who you are. You know, you're going to be able to do this. Or you can do information consequences choice. This is when you tell and you give the information to the rebels so that they have the information that they need. You tell them the consequences of their action or their inaction, and then you allow them to choose. You don't nag them. You don't remind them. You just allow them to choose. And very importantly, you allow the negative consequences to fall on that rebel. If there are negative, you don't save them. You don't rescue them. You don't protect them from negative consequences. Because if not, they're not going to change. They're not going to learn anything from that because this is working great. Like everything worked out fine for the rebel. So the way this might work in practice is let's say you're at work and you're working with a rebel. And, you know, instead of saying to the rebel, oh, you have to do this. You have to meet this timeline. You have to meet this budget or else, you know, or else you'd say to a rebel, hey, you know, we got an opportunity to work with a new client. It sounds like an interesting project. This is the budget. This is the timeline. If we do a great job on a project like this, this could mean more, more projects like this, more great projects like this for all of us, more money, more opportunity. Does this feel like something that you want to tackle? Hmm. Information, consequences, choice. Then the rebel can say like, yes, I want to do it or no, I don't want to do it. And the fact is rebels can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do, but they're not going to do something because you tell them they have to or because they're supposed to. So they have to want to do something. They have to decide for their own reasons to do something. Mm-hmm. That's what works with a rebel. Interesting. Yeah, I think my son is a rebel and mm. <laughs> going, yeah, my, my kids are rebel. And, and so I'm hoping mm. he grows out of it. So I'm kind of stuck with this. No, he won't. Idea that, come on. They no. Gotta be able to no, it's funny. I got an email from somebody who said, I don't like reading about your tendencies because you suggest that people don't change. And don't you, th- <laughs> you know, my husband's a rebel. And don't you think yeah. at a certain point, somebody just grows up and realizes they can't live that way. And I'm like, I hate to break it to you, but you're married to this guy. Like, no, I don't think he's going to change. And the fact is, you can live that way, and he does live that way. So that's it, you know? 
it's, it, I mean, and there's many, many strengths to the rebel tendency. Yeah, for sure. I get that. You're kind of driving a stake through one of my, one of my primary tenets is that, you know, you can, I believe that you can change aspects of your personality because they're all patterned based upon, you know, your upbringing. And so when you get clear about what that is, begin to examine those patterns, it takes great self-awareness, right? It takes great self-awareness to change those patterns and to, you know, to shift. But I've personally seen transformations, uh, but, you know, I guess the jury will be out on that, huh? I'll have to sit with your um, the tendencies and see if yes well, you have to report back to me and tell me what you think <laughs> I will what you, whether you think watch, that um, obviously i'll be watching my 18 year old son really closely to see if he grows <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is awesome so what what's next for you like what's your what's your vision for the future how are you gonna you know continue to serve in this vein and, and are you um you know are you moving do you do coaching by the way i guess no, I'm a writer. You just write. I, you know, I've got a lot of things that I'm, one of, one of my favorite things about myself is I get obsessed with things. And so I've got several obsessions going right now. I haven't decided which one is going to be uh, big enough to be the next book. Often mm-hmm. around this time in a book, I will sort of get hit by a lightning bolt of like just mm-hmm. shaken with the desire to write a book about something. And so I'm just sort of like trying to stay open to a lot of different ideas and follow up a lot of. I re- I'm reading a lot of weird stuff, you know, books that no one's ever heard of, checked out that haven't been checked out of the library in like 15 years nice. and sort of waiting to see where this is going to take me. I know it's going to be about human nature because that's really what mm-hmm. always interests me, but that's, that's a very big subject. <laughs> so sure is. there's a lot of avenues to go down that are, that are so fascinating. So yeah, I'm figuring that out right now. Awesome. In the meantime, uh, you've got the launch of your book. I'm sure you'll have some, PR and all a bunch of stuff to do. So you're not going to be wanting for things to do. So yeah, good luck with that. The four tendencies again, that comes out September. I think you said 12th, September 12th. You're right. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Good luck with the book launch. Uh, It sounds fascinating. I'm going to read it. I, you know, I would have read it before the podcast, but I didn't even know it was showing up. It was so cool that it just showed up in my mailbox. I know. Perfect timing. Serendipity. Yes. Well, now you'll have to, I wonder if you are indeed an obliger. You, when you, when you do it, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to sell, I bet. Um, <laughs> if you're an upholder or an obliger. Yeah. I'll get yeah. back to you on that. Awesome. Yeah, and your, and you whether so your son's are a rebel. Excellent. Thanks so much. So fun to talk to you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we'll meet you sometime in the future in person. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. That was it. Uh, Gretchen Rubin, check out her, her website. And also you can check out her blog at Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And thanks again, as usual, for your time. Super appreciate it. As usual, stay focused, do your daily training, and develop that unbeatable mind. Who ya? Talk to you soon. Divine out. Sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frog.